This week, I'm talking to Aaron Stokes of ShopFix Academy on how shops can stay on brand. Sit tight, because you don't want to miss it. Welcome to Ratchet & Wrench Radio, your podcast for strategies and inspiration for auto care success. I'm Chris Jones, host and editor at Ratchet & Wrench. And here is my interview with Aaron Stokes. This is part of our ongoing series called Stokes Tuesday. And this week, we open up by talking about should shops start preparing for electric vehicles now? And if not now, when? And then we'll segue into our full conversation about marketing and branding and how shops can improve their presence in the community. Now, here's Aaron. Hey, Aaron, welcome back to Ratchet and Wrench Radio. Thanks, buddy. How are you? Doing well, man. That's a... So a lot's been going on in the auto industry since we last talked. Um, I think in the last, just the last couple of weeks, like the buzz around electric vehicles has turned into almost like an arms race. Have you noticed that too? Yep, sure have. Sure have. And it just seems like we're into this thing where like they're fighting for longer charges, faster charges, smaller batteries, mandates from here and there. It's like there's such a whirlwind of information. What do you think a shop owner needs to do right now to focus on emerging tech without getting caught in the whirlwind? You know, uh, it's so far out it's not like a TV, you know, you throw a TV away and uh, uh, after a couple of years are so cheap and it's just not like that. Uh, cars last a lot longer. They're a lot larger investment. I would say cars are more similar to, it's like that old fridge you have in the garage that, you know, 50 years later still working that has the coldest beer and you know, the coldest soda. It's, it's kind of like that. And so because cars are lasting so long, we have to pay attention to what's happening, but we can't, go broke trying to get ahead of the curve for something that's not yet affecting us. So I think the key question here is timing. When do you buy the tool? When do you buy the machine that you quote don't need yet, right? But you will eventually. And uh, I, I think for everybody, th- that's a question they have to answer. Obviously, if you're closer to a larger city, you're going to see more of this. Uh, if you're in a more rural area, you're going to see less. I would also say that even with all the changes, Look at the Toyota Prius that's you know roughly been around 20 years. That car, for it to become mainstream and get near the amount that it even has on the road now, has taken 20 years. So it's going to be a long time coming, and it's not going to happen overnight. Um, and we don't know that it's just going to end up being only electric. There could be a reverse hybrid like the Volt. Uh, we could see some hydrogen products get introduced. We could see uh, there's a well, there's other gasoline engines that are out there, the Acadies motor and the uh, I think it's the Optima one. There's there's several other things that are out there. And so I, I think you've got to be prepared for the change in gasoline, the change also shoot the changes with diesel, uh, the possible more advanced uh, reverse hybrids that we're going to see. And, uh, you know, as battery tech and electric tech continues changing, just researching like you just got to be reading. You got to be watching, reading. Because until these cars are hitting two years to three years old, you'll start to notice them um, you know, prominent on the road, but you won't see them in bays. It'll really be at that five to seven year mark where you'll actually start to see enough showing up in your repair bays that you need to actually start to shift your business model. And that's a long way out. And so we, we have to keep an eye on it, but you know, timing's everything. If you're too quick on the gun and you invest too much money, well, one, when the proper tools come out, uh, in droves, they're going to be cheaper. So, right, you paid the most because you bought it right in the beginning. You were an early adopter. Um, and then as well, a lot of these vehicles, when they you know debut with whatever new technology they're going to have on them, there's going to be different ways to fix them than we've even thought of. 
you know, there might be a, a stupid app on your smartphone. It's like everybody that ran out to do ADOS stuff and buy big buildings, et cetera. And then we've already got manufacturers saying, all right, we're going to sell you a couple of fancy cones and, you know, give you a little computer. And before you know it, it'll be just something on your smartphone and you'll set some stuff in an empty parking lot and program the car. And so uh, stuff is changing rapidly, but we got to be careful that we time this right. We don't want to get too far behind, but we also don't want to be too far ahead. And so you got to think through it and pay attention to what part of the country you're in, because certain parts of the country will be quicker to adopt than others. So it's kind of my opinion in a snapshot. That's a great answer, because, I mean, the reality is it probably is a generation away. We're probably looking at more 2040 than 2030 when you think about it. Because like you talked about the Prius, it's like 20 years old. It reminds me a lot of Y2K when everyone freaked out about Y2K. And then like yeah. January, January 2nd came. I was like, oh, OK, doesn't change. Yeah. <laughs> I remember I was in line for a concert and I heard people talking about Y2K. Like, What's this Y2K thing? And uh, yeah, I'm 43 now. And I just watching all that happen around you know, 20, 21 years old was such an interesting time for me. Like I was like, I'm too young to die. My life. <laughs> Everybody was freaking out. And then here we are. Computers are still working. So I mean, there's a lot of people that live in apartments that, you know, 40% of all homes are saying roughly 40% will never be able to power an electric car. So it, it's, I don't see it as the end all be all, but there is some type of transformation coming. The question is what? And until we know exactly, I don't think anyone needs to freak out, but they do need to keep following the tech, keep reading, keep researching and be ready when we see whatever it is emerge. It becomes the dominant technology. And people that think, oh, well, Tesla's dominant. That's not dominant. That's still, you know, 1% of all the cars sold. We it, it has to be bigger and larger than that. And across multiple brands, you still have different style of plugs for cars. There needs to be one universal, right? Like every car takes the same type of gas nozzle unless it's a diesel. And then all those take the same type. And so we just need to keep our eye on it and watch. And then when we see whatever it is that lands, then you, we all have to make our decision and, and make our bet, just like we did whenever it was, uh, you know, VHS and beta. Oh and, yeah, uh, Blu-ray <laughs> and uh, what was the is Blu-ray and laser disc came between that one. Yeah, it was gigantic laser discs. Yeah, and so it, it was just all kinds of different stuff. So I think you just gotta sit back and watch to see what emerges. So. That's so true. So true. Yeah, I remember when the Blu-ray player came out, it was like a thousand bucks, man. Now you can get them for like 30 bucks. It's like, wow. Oh, yeah. And the nutty part is <laughs> now vinyl records are coming back more expensive and more popular than ever. It's like yep. what we've seen with the resurgence of V8s here in the last few years. So at the end of the day, people like to panic and sell the story. All oh, auto repair shops are going to freak out and go away. That's not reality. In reality... It's going to be a little bit of a mix. You're going to start seeing electric and more diesel and more hybrid and then more battery services and then more gas. And then you're just going to see a mix of everything. And then all the new tech in the cars and the battery, not the battery, the cameras and the sensors, all that's going to keep all of us busy. I mean, 20 years ago, none of us worked on sunroofs. It was just most cars didn't have them. Now, I mean, they're leaking all the time that, you know, the, the <laughs> motors are failing. We didn't have seats with massage, you know, motors in them. Now you get an F-150, it massages your butt all the way to wherever you're going. So people come in, they say that stuff stops working and you're going to work on it. So I think that we all need to realize that that, that's the future, that there's going to be more features on cars that are breaking. And then there's going to be multiple different types of power plants. That just means we got to be even better. And that also means that your pricing is going to be protected. 
and your market share is going to be protect, uh, protected if you're if you're sticking with it and keeping up with the technology as it rolls out. Well, let's break down your last column, your April column. You know, staying on brand. You know, you talk to shop owners about sticking to their focus, whether that be domestic cars, European models, Japanese cars, and not being pushed around by temptation in the market. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I, I've seen shop owners all of a sudden say, oh, "I'm getting some euros. I think I'm gonna maybe hire a Eurotech and start going after it." Well, if you're just going to add one technician and start going after it, maybe you can do a little bit. But when you start shifting all your marketing, et cetera, what you're going to realize is a Mercedes owner, a diehard Mercedes owner, does not want their Mercedes in a bay next to a Toyota. They just don't. You may go, well, that's snobby. That's ridiculous. I get it. But they they want to spend more on their car. They're going to they're gonna spend more on their clothes. They're going to spend more on their watch. They enjoy the finer things in life, as they put it. And they like to feel like they're exclusive. And that, that owner's not going to come to your shop. But that owner's also the one that'll pay the money. Typically, the owner that goes to a general repair shop with a Mercedes is somebody who's also looking for a deal and doesn't want to pay the Mercedes specialty shop. As a guy that owns both, I can tell you that. So I would encourage people, if you're a diesel guy, same thing. Whatever it is, know your market. And continue to pursue it. Don't just jump out of this and jump into that. I'll, I'll see owners that will, you know, swap every week. It seems like on what their focus is. Pick a focus, and then stick with it. Do not deviate from the plan. That's the best advice I could I could give you. You got to pick a focus and stick with it. Because if you don't, what's going to happen is um, every time the wind blows, you're going to change your mind. And if you're not known for one thing. You're going to try to be known for many things and then you're going to be known for nothing. So you need to fix, you know, what it is you're going to be known for. What is your reputation? When someone describes your shop, what do they say? That's the expensive guy or that's the cheap guy or uh, that's the Euro guy or that's the, the diesel girl. You know, it didn't matter. And for all the girl owners out there, I mean, holy crap, talk about brand advantage. You can be like, uh, you know, I'm the car lady or the car girl or I'm the diesel girl or whatever. I mean, you can own that and it would be unique. You can never say I'm the, you know, the diesel guy and there's five diesel guys on your street. The odds are there's only going to be one diesel girl. So there's different things that you can own with your marketing. So find out what's your niche. You Maybe you're next to the airport. I'm the airport shop or you're next to the river. I'm the river shop. There's got to be a way that people describe you. When they're telling their friends about you, that's that shop over there next to what are they saying you're next to? That's that shop that does great work. That's that shop that takes forever. That's that shop that's really fast. That's that shop that's real expensive. We think they just say our name. That's not what they do. They say our name, then they describe us. What is that little slang term they're using to describe us? Master that piece. You can do that. You know that that that's a game changer. So how can that scarcity mindset of chasing the wind, so to speak, you know, where, okay, I'm getting a bunch of Fords. I'm going to start just focusing on just on Fords because that's where the money is right now. I'm going to focus on just Chevy's because that's where all the money is right now. You know, how can that scarcity mindset work against a shop owner long-term when they could be doing a lot more, but instead, because they're afraid of losing the buck, they sacrifice all for the buck. Man, that's a good one. That's a good one, Chris. Um, So honestly, a lot of guys, and girls um, will find themselves in a situation where they need money. Cash is tight. And uh, when cash gets tight, you get scared. And when you get scared, you start making um, stupid decisions. We've all done it, you know, with our personal finances. Uh, You know, I've done it when I was broke and 
I, I think it's very, very easy for you to go down a path that can appear like the right move at the time because you're in trouble, but long-term can really back you into a corner. And that comes from a very narrow focus. You, you really need to look beyond that. You, you really need to look, what would be the word, the best word to say, um, a broad picture of 40,000 foot view, long-term, the long game. You know, I don't care what term you want to use, but any of those work. You're not going to be here forever. Someday you're going to be doing better. But to get to someday when you're better, quicker, you need to make decisions that pay off in the long run. When you only make decisions that pay off in the short run because of a lack of savings, because you ran out and blew your money on a alignment machine or a tire balancer, or you, you heard somebody say, I should get out of debt. So you went and you paid off all your debt. Now you're broke and you have no money. Um, at the end of the day, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying not to pay off your debt, but you got to balance it. How do I balance paying off debt and savings? You're not like a, uh, a person working for a normal salary paycheck. When you're a business owner, you don't know if work is coming in tomorrow. You got to be smart. And so while we're being smart, while we're staying ahead of things and watching how things are uh, playing out, how can we keep ourselves um, protected in a way that keeps us ahead of the game? And so I want to make sure I'm being disciplined with saving money. I want to make sure that I'm being disciplined on my focus. I've done my research, my market research. I know what it is I'm going after. But I'm not going to be stupid and just chase the dollar or chase the buck, as you said, which so many of us have done. Because we're scared, you know, we got to pay the bills, we got to pay rent, we got to put food on the table. And it can be scary, especially all the younger shop owners that are brand new into this industry and you're just getting going. It's scary. You, you had a dream, you went and you did this, and it doesn't go like you think it should. And you're like, crap, I, I got I to gotta pay bills this week. I got to make money. Where are the customers coming from? And when you find yourself in that, in that spot, it's very easy to start chasing something because you just think that's what you should chase. And sometimes it's right. That's the crazy part. Sometimes there is a bunch of Fords, as you put it, showing up or a bunch of diesel trucks or a bunch of Cadillacs. And that's what you should pursue. Sometimes it's right. But more often than not, when you're small and you're a cheap shop, you're just getting going, you're undercutting those shops to get work. It's very, very easy for you to actually chase the buck in the wrong direction and you think there's tons of diesels or, or there's tons of fours no what you found is a bunch of poor people that need to get their car fixed and so what you're chasing is a market that's going nowhere so do your research don't just go oh i'm getting a lot of fours knocking on my door you're one little shop you're not the market the market is all 200 shops in your little town right so do the math think it through make sure you understand where you're going and then once you know that you've done your research, you can start making executive level decisions and build your business model on it. Don't do it until you've pulled demographics, you've pulled the car counts, you know what's actually out there. Don't do it by your, your gut. Go run a report off your management software. What's the most common car coming into your shop? But be very careful. If your car counts only 50 cars a month or 100 cars a month or 150 cars a month, that's not enough cars to make a decision off of. It's too small of a sample size. If you're doing two, three, 400 cars a month, 600 cars a month, 800 cars a month, okay, you're cooking with grease now. We can, we can make a decision off of that. But you can't make a decision when you have a low car count. The sample size is too small. So do your research, think through it, and make an, uh, an executive level decision based with accurate data. Then I think, and only then, 
can you really direct your company in the right direction and not just chase the buck? Because fear will lead if you don't do it with wisdom. So for the shop owner that gets that and starts trying in the right direction and starts working on their marketing, you know, you mentioned that shop owners need to develop the voice of their brand through the marketing and not the opposite way where you're building the, where you're building the brand first and then trying to market through the brand. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Why is it more important for shop owners to focus on developing the marketing side first and letting that drive the brand? Yeah, uh, honestly, it's because of budget. You know, we're all small. We can't afford to put up a sign that is uh, like a Coca-Cola logo on a billboard five miles away. And you're driving in the interstate and you see white cursive letters on a red background. We all know that's Coca-Cola. We can't afford that. It doesn't say Coca-Cola, buy one, get one free or anything like that. It just literally says Coca-Cola, especially when you go to foreign countries. We cannot do that. All we can do is put out an offer. Every time you put out an offer or every time you reach out to your customer, you better have an offer attached. Always be offering. Always be offering. So if you mail out a newsletter, it needs an offer. If you email out a communication, it needs an offer. If somebody lands on your website, there needs to be an offer. There's always an intro offer to get them to meet you and become a customer. And whatever that offer is, it's something you're going to sell very, very cheap or at cost or even below cost for most of us with oil changes in order to get them in so that you can sell things that are profitable, like repairs or services, to that same customer and win the day. So how do we set ourselves up to be profitable and do this over and over and over with our marketing to where the marketing, every time it has an offer on it, they keep seeing it. And a byproduct of that is they see your red and white or blue and white or blue and yellow or black and red logo. How do we do that? Well, that means if Coca-Cola, every time you saw them, it said, buy one, get one free. And it was for Tiger Mart Exxon gas station. Okay, you know, that works. But Coca-Cola is at such a size, they could just put up Coca-Cola and they own that real estate in our space. We know who they are. The same goes for Sprite, Pepsi, IBC Root Beer, uh, Dr. Pepper, Mountain Dew, you know, all these larger brands, you know, they're going to stand out. But Fresca, for example, for example, or ginger ale, something not as popular, it wouldn't work. You see a, a ginger ale logo 100 miles away, not 100 miles away, you know, 1,000 yards away. You don't know what that is until you get right on it. Same thing with the golden arches. You know what that is. But if you're a small company like us, we always have to have an offer. And if we always have an offer that gets our odds of them coming into our shop greater and higher, then the cool thing is on the backside of that, the customer's also seen our logo. And as they see our logo over and over and over and over, that is building a brand. And what is a brand? It is a symbol that stands for something. So what is that symbol? A symbol for you might be, um, you know, the silhouette of a car. I, there's so many auto repair shops. They get the silhouette of a Corvette and they have their name underneath it. It's like the most common logo that came out in like the 90s and the early 2000s. And I don't know who invented it, but they sold it to everybody. Get a unique logo. Go to Fiverr, go somewhere, you know, Fiverr.com is a great website. You can hire somebody to make you a logo, but get a unique logo for you and then have that on every piece of marketing and every piece of marketing has an offer. And then every time that goes out or someone receives it, they're then going to see your logo. And when they get that flyer, that email, that Google ad word, you know, a hundred times over the next year and they keep seeing that logo, that logo will eventually stand for something. And the byproduct of marketing was branding. Versus instead, you would just be mailing out something with your logo on it. That ain't going to drive any customers into your shop. That's not going to work. We don't want to do that. 
But there's so many people, that's what they want to do. They want to send a flyer out without an offer because they think coupons are bad. They'll use that line. It's not my customer. Drives me crazy. Everybody's your customer. Are there people you do not want to do business with? Sure. Are there people that have been burned from other repair shops? They don't want to come use your shop. Sure. Are there people that are just cheap? Sure. But I have to train salesmen and saleswomen who are good enough that they can overcome those objections and make that marketing count. And will there be some customers that will go, hey, take them off the list. We're not going to market to them anymore. Absolutely. But we are not going to get hung up on every single time there's any price friction or any type of pushback that they're not my customer. That's insanity. If a pizza joint did that, they'd go out of business. So a lot of shop owners are hung up on that, making it their sandbox, setting their prices based on their costs, never actually understanding their market. Your market sets the price. I don't set the price. I know it doesn't matter what my costs are. I could have rent that's $100,000 a month. Doesn't mean my market's going to pay it. The market is going to pay what it pays, period. So I need to think through what it is I'm going to go after, market to that over and over and over. And then whatever my business stands for, that is the definition of my brand that's associated with that logo that hits that mailbox every freaking month. It hits that email inbox every month. It hits Facebook. That hits whatever it is you're doing. If you're doing radio, TV, whatever it might be. And you may go, how's it work on radio? It's a slogan that's attached to your logo. And the logo is your name. So when you think through it and you pull all this together, it can really make you successful. And you can do really, really well. But branding must be a byproduct of all of your efforts to make an offer over and over and over every time you contact your customer. What is your thoughts on brands having a unique voice? You know, when you think, when I, when I say that, I think like Geico has a unique voice and a unique sound to it, or maybe like Planet Fitness or Chick-fil-A, or sometimes where those brands either have a humorist or a tongue-in-cheek kind of a tone, or even some places have like a very premium sounding thing going on with them, like maybe like a fossil wash, someone like that. But what are your thoughts on that? Like, should shops take advantage of having a voice attached to themselves. Like what, there was something years ago, like when I first moved to where I live now in Virginia, and uh, I used to get these text messages, these marketing text messages from this sub shop. And they were so funny to me. And I would go there just because I thought, thought the, the texts were really funny. I was like, that's the great marketing. I'm going to go buy a food from you. They would send you a text to say, hey, don't tell Bill, but I'm offering you 25% off your lunch if you come in today. And it was like so funny. Like, like it's like the employees are like sneaking around the boss's back giving discounts. Yeah, that stuff is kind of fun to me. But what are your thoughts on you know shops having a brand voice? You know, that's a great point. So uh, like Jaguar cars, right? That's luxury. They always have an English woman as the voice. Why is it that anytime we think about luxury, we think of an English woman's voice? And that's kind of with every brand. And they call it Jaguar. They don't call it Jaguar. They say it even different. And uh, when you when you hear people talk like that, you're like, OK, there's a voice. Uh, uh, Louis Vuitton right? Purses for women. I don't know a woman out there that doesn't want a Louis Vuitton purse. And that, and they're crazy expensive. It's ridiculous. I don't think it's worth it, but hey, you know, to each their own. Um, apparently my wife thinks it's worth it. So I go to work and she gets to go out and buy a Louis Vuitton. Well, that Louis Vuitton has a voice and it's a little bit of exclusivity. You got to be able to afford it. You got to be able to fit into this club, et cetera. But then there's stuff that's not price oriented. It could be family oriented. Chick-fil-A, like you brought up. Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday, which drives me crazy because I always want Chick-fil-A on Sunday. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, you stop and you think about it. Chick-fil-A stands for family. People joke and say it's pre-blessed chicken. Like they've already prayed for you. You don't got to pray for <laughs> You know, all these jokes, but it's good food. Like it is high quality, good tasting food. Hardee's. 
Hardy's decided um, to go, uh, I don't know, maybe it's five years ago. They started putting out all these ads with these girls in bikinis eating these burgers. They got tons of pushback. And they said, we're going to be the company that sells burgers that taste amazing or super unhealthy. And we're just going to own it. Well, then people were like, what the heck? People didn't have a problem with the food, but people started pushing back and there were scary ads. So how did they combat that? Well, then one day they come up with an ad. It's an old man who comes in and he knocks over some stuff and he fires the sun. And he said, it's been too long. We're kicking you out. And it was like this thing where the sun had run the company into the ground and the dad was taking it back. And that wasn't really what happened, but that was what they did for the marketing ploy, right? Um, uh, I think all of these different companies, they decide to own this personality almost. And this personality is a voice, a sound, a feel, whatever. It's very difficult to do that with service. You can do it. But when you go the service route, think about 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Well, the 1-800-GOT-JUNK, their marketing now is all about, hey, your house is stressing you out. If you listen to the radio ads, it says, uh, if you haven't used it in a month, it's junk. Get it out of your house. You're going to feel fresh and clean when we come, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You're going to get a new you know, lease on life and uh, it's going to help with depression. Like they're going down the personal de- development route. It's nuts. And then you hear college hunks hauling junk. And their voice is, we're going to send good-looking dudes to your house, uh, and the ladies are going to like it. And they're going to haul your crap out of your house. Well, then you drive by one of these vans, and it's a bunch of ugly guys, <laughs> you know, skinny as a rail. They've not been lifting muscles or lifting weights and have big muscles like you see on the cartoons. But that's their marketing message. Two same companies, totally different. And what are they describing? They're describing you and your interaction. So if someone's going to interact with you in a service relationship, you typically see luxury. Like I, I've seen like a black tie auto repair type vibe, right? And I, I run that with my, my Eurofix brand and my Autofix brand. But then uh, my other brand, my uh, Mike's Auto brand, that's going to be uh, a totally more of a cost conscious, uh, speed focus brand, not so much on luxury. And so... Uh, it, it won't have the same amenities, et cetera. So you, you have to decide what are you going to go for? Because in the service side, there's not as many options. But if you went to a restaurant because there's this entire experience, you can really customize the experience. But in auto repair, they only have that five-minute interaction and they're gone. They leave their car with you. And if they wait, they're in a waiting room. They're not like experimenting or not experimenting, experiencing your staff over and over like you do at a restaurant. So it is harder in service versus product or versus uh, experiential type things that you pay for. But um, if you just think about the simple things, if you walked out into your parking lot, look back at your shop and you look at it and you go, yeah, I'm definitely not luxury. Okay, cool. That's fine. Then let's be the fastest shop around. Or you go, yeah, I'm definitely not luxury. Uh, I'm more like the professor. I do the best work. Okay, then let's take that doctor professor angle. Um, there'll be nobody that fixes it better than you and just push quality. Um, maybe you walk out, you stand in your parking lot, you look at your shop, you're like, man, we're a good looking place. This place is awesome. All right, cool. Well then how are we going to pursue that? How are we going to go that luxury route? How are you going to make that waiting room really nice? You can't have that cheap vinyl couch. You better have a real leather couch now. Better have a Keurig machine in there. You know, you better have all the sodas and all the waters, all the snacks. So you, you've got to think through what that looks like at your front counter. You better have granite. Everybody's different based on their specific situation, but you might already kind of be leaning a direction. You just haven't thought about it. So I would encourage somebody out there, if they're thinking about this voice, as you described it, what is your voice now? And you may go, that's kind of generic. 
Okay, but which direction is at least leaning? And then just chase that. Throw gas on that fire and pursue that. I think that could be very, very helpful. Yeah, I feel like we're missing we're missing something here, Aaron. Maybe we should be starting. Maybe we should be serving like you know wings while you wait. You can sit in the waiting room. You can get some wings while you wait. Probably a little Dude, bit cars at that totally point. Go there. <laughs> I can throw down some wings. I'm hungry now. What are you doing? <laughs> no, something something you said, which which I think is very is is smart marketing, is you know the idea of positioning. Uh, you know, where, where, you know, you typically get something from a car dealer or, or, or not a dealer, but a, a repair shop where it'll be like, hey, come get your oil changed or hey, come get your brake pads, you know, done or whatever the case may be versus selling the positioning, which would be like, you know, selling me security. Hey, make sure you get your brake pads done before you go to the beach so you don't want to end up, you know, in, in, well, with, a, with a situation or make sure you get your tires inflated or whatever it may be. But like selling me my, my, my pain points or things that like trigger me in a sense. Yeah, that's what I, I feel like that's good position. I think I feel like that's a good way to market as well as just figuring out what those things are in your neck of the woods. Like what, what kind of things, what kind of way can I position myself as a shop where my message then reaches people and hits them where they live and gets them to come into shop and get these things like the oil service done before, you know, before the engine blows up on the side of the road or the tires, you know, changed out before they go on vacation. And all of a sudden they're on, they got a flat tire because they didn't get a chance to rotate them out. That sort of thing. Yeah. And you know, uh, you just hit something. Um, fear is probably the most powerful marketing tool, right? So uh, I could use scarcity with fear uh, uh, or even urgency. We're running out of time, right? So you've got to think about the angle you're going to position yourself with. The fear of pain will always be more powerful than the hope of gain. And so you don't want to ever send an ad out that says, we're going to keep your car running great. Come see us. A much more powerful ad would say something like, you might break down this hot summer, have you had your AC checked? Have you uh, uh, have you got your battery checked before you go into the winter? You don't want to get stuck out in the cold, do you? And so when you say it one way or the other, you're actually going to cause somebody to feel that fear and people want to avoid fear or avoid pain. And so they're going to go that direction. You can use humor. Like I did an ad like what you're describing with my shops a while back where uh, my mom was putting bunny ears behind my head in a photo <laughs> and it basically said, you know, don't tell Aaron or it says, Shh, don't tell Aaron, like your guy that said, hey, don't tell Bill we're giving discounts. And the it's crazy, but the cornier your ad is, the more effective it is because it strikes at the basics of human interaction. Right. So humor works great. Fear works great. Um, you don't want to be just generally positive. No one's going to remember that. It, they're, they're just going to throw it away. It's like getting a dental ad in the mail going. Uh, yeah, we'll fix your teeth. Hundred dollars off. Hundred dollars off of what? That ad's <laughs> not going to perform well. But if it says before and after, and it shows a woman's smile, and one, you know, she's missing a tooth, and they're all yellow, then she's got bright white teeth, and they're all perfect. I'm gonna be dang. I want. I want to look like her. And then it says a hundred dollars off of that. So if you're not gonna do, you're gonna do a hundred dollars off. It has to be a hundred dollars off of a specific item, or it needs to just be the actual price. Normally, this we're gonna do it for this, right? And so you've got to think about your positioning like you brought up and say, all right, my audience, how am I going to set myself up to be ultra successful with my particular audience? Every audience is different. And if yeah. you can figure that out, you can do really well. Yeah, that's true. I feel like the data is out there that supports all of it. Because if, if my kids play video games. They play Call of Duty. They play, you know, all the first person shoot. But the first person shooters prove to you that people really care about POV experience. And so if you're putting people's experiences into an ad, you have a high chance of being successful. Oh, yeah. And, uh my son 
it wasn't until he got in trouble at school that I finally was able to take his Xbox away. Now he's always on the phone with his girlfriend. But he was always <laughs> playing Call of Duty or whatever. And I was like, you know, enough blood and guts. Let's drop on a great star or something. Let's do something else. And so I, I think that a lot of us, pe- people are looking for that experience, as you just said. And a lot of us need to understand our customer. Like my coaching is very customer centric, right? My shops, very customer centric. My employees, I'm going, listen. If you were 75 years old and you were retired and you came in here and you had nothing to do, you would also want to walk out in the bay and stare at the technician. Don't get mad at Fred. <laughs> you know, he brings you donuts, you know, every, you know, every other week. He has nothing to do. Okay, boss, I get, you know. And so I think that at the end of the day, we always have to put ourselves in our customer's shoe and see it, as you put it, from their point of view. And if we do that, we can be pretty successful and understand what it is they're looking for and they need so that they can get it to the next level. Yeah. Now you made a really phenomenal analogy. I thought in your column about grandma, you know, you talked about, you know, about the whole idea of being consistent in brand, like equating that to going to grandma's house for Thanksgiving and having her serve cracker barrel, as opposed to, you know, blowing it out in the kitchen for you. And that would be so off brand for grandma and be very disappointing experience. Like, like, how can having inconsistency in a brand across platforms be damaging to a shop and its reputation? Well, and let me defend Cracker Barrel. It could be better. Cracker Barrel could be better. <laughs> it might be better than Grandma. But that's just part of it. You're supposed to get there. You get the turkey, the stuffing, and that jello that's lime green. You're like, what is in that? I'm not eating it. You know, that's supposed to be there. All that being said, I think that if you, if someone showed up, and you claim you have a three-year, 36,000-mile nationwide warranty, and then you got a bunch of fine print underneath it. And one day I break at 25 months, and I come in. Hey, guys, y'all did my uh, radiator, and you said that it had a three-year warranty on it. And you go, yeah, Aaron, no problem. I go, okay, Chris, thanks. Just call me. Let me know when it's done. Hey, Aaron, got it all done. That's going to be $340. Wait, Chris, I, th- I thought there was a warranty. Oh, yeah, it was a prorated warranty. I don't remember that. Oh, yeah, it's in the fine print. That would be off-brand. Like you have violated the viewpoint that the customer had about you. You violated their trust. Like they thought you were one thing. Now, oh, you're just like everybody else. They see you as totally different. And and I went very extreme with that option, but I need to be that extreme to point it out. Like I do not believe in the oil change coupons that when you show up, it's I don't know. Uh, it only covered five quarts, and yours is seven, so you owe us another eighteen bucks. Now the customer's pissed that you're charging them an extra $18. Oh, and then can we also sell you some $800 brakes? They're not going to buy that $800 pair of brakes because they're pissed that you just upcharged them 18 bucks and they didn't read the fine print. If your marketing requires fine print, you're doing it wrong. Eat the 18 bucks. Well, Aaron, I'm losing $18. I don't care. You get a chance to swing it back and hit an $800 brake job. I'd want that. I don't know about you, but I'd want that job take that job all day. And so a lot of owners, they don't realize that their brand stands for something. And hopefully one of those things is trust. (laughs) That'd be nice. And that they are violating that trust when they go and they pull a fast one on their customer. And you may go, Aaron, it's not a fast one. I mean, I'm losing money on the five quarts already. Now you ask me to lose money on seven. Yes. Yes, I am. Because some of them are going to be only four and you're not even thinking about that. So at the end of the day, you're going to lose some money. Maybe you raise your price a little bit but you're going to lose some money. You're never going to have any surprises, no gotcha fees, and you're going to take care of your customer and hopefully win that sale and not have a bad taste in their mouth and makes them tell you no whenever you try to sell them 800 bucks in breaks. 
All right. And then my last question for today is, you know, you concluded the column by saying that shop owners really need to lead the charge to be their own brand guardians, you know, to really take care of their brand and steward it themselves. You know, what's the first step in really just taking control of your brand as a shop owner? Huh. I would say uh, you set the tone. You are the culture warrior. I believe in having guardrails on each side of the, of the, of the road, if you will. And they might go a little to the left and bang up against the guardrail. They might go a little to the right and bang up against the guardrail. But it's my job to keep it in line. It's like when I walk into a shop and on Friday, Friday is dress down day. And I don't require my staff to wear a shirt and tie on, on Friday. They can just wear a nice dress shirt and jeans. They don't have to wear slacks. Monday through Thursday, we wear slacks and we wear a shirt and tie. At least the guys do. The girls just do uh, business casual. The problem with that is that when you walk in on a Friday, and one of your employees, you know, you gave them an inch, they took a mile, and they're wearing a Hawaiian shirt, not a dress shirt, with their jeans. They're wearing jeans, the jeans have holes in them, and their shirt's untucked. And this has happened to me. And I'll walk in and go, hey, David, um, hey, uh, I just noticed you didn't have your shirt tucked in. If you could help me out and tuck your shirt in, that'd be great. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry about that, Aaron. Okay, thanks. Appreciate you. Because it's a little too casual for business. And then I would go text the manager. Hey, bro, David had his shirt untucked. I corrected it, just FYI. And he's got holes in his jeans and he's wearing a Hawaiian shirt. I mean, this is getting too out there. We're getting too far out of line. What did I do? I established the guardrail. Whether it's on the left side of the road or the right side, I've established the guardrail. That keeps us in line. And there's a million things like that. You have to keep correcting, keep correcting, keep them back on the path. Those of you that get afraid of correcting your employees, you don't want to say anything, you're afraid they're going to quit. Well, then now... You're a leader they don't respect. They don't trust you. They don't want to follow you. Get over being scared. Show them what they need to do. Hold them accountable. Build your business. I promise you it's going to work out. Well, thanks, Aaron. It's been great to have you on again. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. Yeah. And we'll we'll do it again with our, our next uh, Stokes Tuesday next month. All right, buddy. Appreciate you. Have a good one. All right. You too. Thanks for joining us today. Now go make the rest of your day the best of your day. And we'll see you back here next week on Ratchet & Wrench Radio.